Welcome to the Yoga Teacher Evolution Podcast. Namaste. My name is Paul Teodo, joined here with Michael Henry. Most yoga teacher trainings are becoming watered down and mediocre. So we've created this podcast to help supplement those of you who graduated from a teacher training and don't feel confident going out into the real world. Michael and I are lucky to have been trained by some amazing people. We've gone out into the world ourselves and had success, and we want you to feel confident to protect your students and to build your career with integrity and authenticity. Welcome to our podcast. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Yoga Teacher Evolution Podcast. My name is Michael Henry, and I will be your host for today. I will be rocking the mic solo. We have no Paul, we have no Byron, and we do not have a guest. But today, we're going to be talking about some anatomy stuff. So really, I'm the only one that should be on this podcast anyway, particularly for this episode. So what we're going to be talking about today is hip flexibility. More specifically, the four factors that affect hip flexibility. And I think this is important because most people, whether you're a yoga teacher or not, believe that they have tight hips, or at least according to my research. When my research, what I mean by that is by show of hands, usually I ask who here feels like they have tight hips. And about 90% of people will lift up their hands, regardless of how flexible they might be. So generally speaking, most people feel as though they have tight hips. Okay. Now, what are those four factors? Let's just go through the quick overview of what they are. So the first one is the orientation of your hip socket, your pelvis, the bones, all that stuff. The second one is the strength and the size of the muscles that surround your hip. The third one is the emotions or the traumas or the stressors that might have been trapped in and around your hip joint or the muscles that are preventing you from being able to access your full range of motion. And then the last one is a little bit deeper, and we'll talk more about this one. And this is the imbalances within the hip muscles themselves, whether some muscles are tighter and other muscles are weaker, or maybe some muscles are just not activating properly and it's causing some sort of imbalance and therefore tightness in and around the hip. So before we dive into those four factors, let's just talk quickly about the hip in general. Now the hip joint is just or very much the same like the shoulder joint in the sense that it is a ball and socket joint okay there's a ball that fits into the socket and then it can kind of do some movements that create ultimately the same movements within the shoulder assuming that we don't move this the shoulder blade itself so those movements are flexion extension abduction out to the side adduction closer to the midline and then external and internal rotation very similar to the shoulder itself but then with the shoulder, we have the shoulder blade, which allows us to protract, retract, elevate, and depress the shoulder blade itself. So these two joints are very similar uh, because of the fact that they're both ball and sockets. The major difference is, is that the hip joint is significantly deeper than the shoulder joint. And as a result, the hip joint is quite strong and stable. And sometimes that can be perceived as tightness or lack of flexibility within that joint. Whereas the shoulder itself has a lot of flexibility, a lot of range of motion, a lot of ability to be able to move in larger ranges than the hip itself. However, as a result, the shoulder doesn't have as much stability or strength. So it's kind of a trade-off. If you have more flexibility, more range of motion, then you're not going to be quite as strong and stable. So whereas the hips, the hips are quite strong and stable, but there's not as much, and I don't want to use the word flexibility. I'm going to say range of motion. 
as compared to the shoulder. So that's kind of the trade-off, right? And that's probably the biggest factor about the hips compared to the shoulders, but ultimately how and why most people feel like they have tight hips because generally they are. They are tight, they're strong, they're stable, and they need to be because they're supporting a lot of our body weight, as well as whenever we're walking, running, doing whatever it is that we're doing, the hip joint needs to be quite, quite strong. It's very close to the epicenter of the body. And that epicenter to me is the pelvis in and around your belly button, basically where your hips are. That's kind of, to me, is the epicenter. So if, if your hips move, then your spine moves. If your hips move, then your legs move. Or I shouldn't say hips. If your pelvis moves, your spine moves. If your pelvis moves, your hips move, which ultimately means your legs move. So to me, that's the epicenter. That's the command center. This is like the central port for movement within our body. And we talk a lot about this in the pelvic episode. Uh, I don't even know. A few episodes back, you can check that one out. It breaks a lot of that down and how it connects to the spine as well as to the hip joint. But today, we're going to be talking about the hip joint solely and those four factors that affect its flexibility. Now, let's just briefly go into the muscles of the hip. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into these when we start to talk about the muscle imbalances, but I think it's important to understand that there are so many muscles that surround the hip because it's such a deep joint in comparison to the shoulder, for example. There's so many different layers, like there's smaller little layers. There's lots of ligaments. Actually, first of all, there's lots of ligaments that surround the ball and socket joint itself, which are quite strong and thick. Then we have a lot of smaller muscles that are responsible for the external rotation and internal rotation and stability of the hip. And then we have a lot of the larger muscles that kind of go over top to allow us to create larger gross movements, especially like the glutes, for example, which are the obvious ones that we know about. And they're quite large and we can see them from the outside, right? So the hip joint itself is quite deep and buried within all of that muscle tissue. So as a result, you know, you're not going to get as much movement because it's kind of buried within. The other thing to keep in mind with regards to why hips feel as though they're more tight than other joints is because we also have a lot of fascial lines that pass through the hips. So I don't think we've talked too much about fascia on this podcast, but I'm sure we will. It's something that I like to talk a lot about it personally in the trainings. I don't know how I would do that in a podcast, but we'll figure that out. So ultimately the four major fascial lines all cross the hip. Okay. So we have the lateral line, which crosses along the side. We have the spiral line, which also crosses along the side of the hips. Then we have the superficial back line, which crosses on the back side of the hips, ultimately through the, the, the sacrum. And then we have the superficial front line, which crosses into the front side of the hips. So we have all these structures. We got the ligaments, we got the muscles, we got the fascia that's just crossing over the hip joint. So there's lots of factors that are affecting its flexibility, particularly from a muscle or connective tissue perspective. Okay, so just keep that in mind. It's a deep, deep joint. And flexibility is not usually something that comes naturally to the structures in itself, right? Some people might appear to be more flexible than others. But again, that's going to depend on these four factors. So again, what are those four factors? Those four factors are the orientation of the hips, we talk about the muscles, size, and um, strength in and around the hips. And then we have those trapped emotions, trauma, stress, tension, as well as muscle imbalance. So let's, let's talk about the orientation of the hips first. So for me, this is probably one of the main reasons why I have not as much flexibility in my hips. And that's because, well, not because I'm a man, not because I'm a male, but ultimately the differences between men and women with regards to orientation of the hips, I am quite a typical male when it comes to the orientation of my hips. So 
Females, we'll start with, have more on average and typically will have more of a wider hip set with regards to their pelvis and their, their hip joint. And the hip ball and socket will kind of face a little bit more towards the side or out uh, kind of obliquely, kind of on an angle. All right. And then obviously because women, you know, create life and they give birth, the hips are going to be a little bit wider as well. Whereas with males, those are not necessarily a requirement. And therefore what we do have is usually narrower hips and those hips ball and socket joint will usually face a little bit more forward, kind of like myself. So without having an actual visual representation of what I'm talking about, just imagine that the shapes of our pelvis or our bones in and around our hip are going to be different from person to person, whether it is the direction in which the ball and socket joint is facing, the size, you know, whether they're facing to this, to the side or more toward the front, or maybe more upward or more downward, if they're a little bit wider or more narrow, all these little factors, there's varying degrees of degrees in which the hip can be shaped. And therefore that can affect our flexibility in how we can do maybe external rotation, maybe extension of the hip it might affect our back bends because if our leg doesn't go as far back, then maybe our pelvis won't allow as much, you know, extension in the lower back. Ultimately, that's just a factor that we can't control. And it's something that we need to accept. So a quick little story about that is like, for me, I don't have a lot of external rotation in my hips and it's really difficult for me to sit in a cross-legged position, Sukhasana. It's been like that since I was a little kid. And I always thought that there was something wrong with me and that I needed to, you know, fix my legs or my hips, or I, I didn't even know what was wrong with me. And the more that I started to do yoga and the more that I understood, you know, anatomy, I started to realize that that's just the way my hips are right? It's just the way that they're positioned and I just won't have a lot of external rotation and that's okay, right? If I tried to force myself into doing more external rotation, even though it's not a possibility with the orientation and shape of my hips, then I'm probably just going to cause an injury, right? Forcing myself to do something that my body can't even do. So that's just kind of a hard truth that I had to accept and whether that's something for you or maybe something for some of the students, it's just really important to understand that concept, I think. Okay, so for the second factor, which is the strength and the size of the muscles that surround a hip, the best way to imagine this or just to compare this is just to think of two different types of people. So we have, let's say, someone who does ballerina or they are a long-distance runner. They're going to have smaller, skinnier legs, we'll say, and therefore not as much muscle mass surrounding the hip joint. Then if we were to have someone who uh, might have larger hips, larger butt muscles, larger thigh muscles, thunder thighs, if you will. You can imagine someone like a sprinter, for example, would have quite thick thigh muscles, quite thick muscles around the hip, or like rugby players, football players, those types of things. So large muscles surrounding the hip. So the larger those muscles are that surround the hip, the less mobility there probably will be because there's going to be more strength, more stability. And it's kind of like a teeter-totter. If you have more of that, you're going to probably not have as much flexibility or range of motion, generally speaking. Okay. Generally speaking. So for that reason, if you have someone to come into your yoga class that has massive thunder thighs and big butt, and you know, they have a lot of muscle surrounding their hip joint, they're probably generally speaking, not going to have as much flexibility. Okay. So there's gonna be lots of room for improvement there. Uh, whereas someone who has skinnier legs, not as much muscle surrounding it. Um, chances are there's not going to be as much of that muscle getting in the way. And therefore there's going to be more flexibility or more range of ocean available to be able to explore, which is, you know, depends on the individual. 
So that's pretty much all we need to talk about for that one. There's not much more to that factor. It's just, again, something to remember to keep in mind visually when you see certain people with, you know, if they come to you with certain hip questions, hip flexibility questions, or even yourself, you can kind of just assess and evaluate your hip muscle strength and size and see where you fit into that equation. Now, the two last topics are the ones that we're going to dive in a little bit more deeply. And the third one is, uh, or the first one of the two and the third one of the four, not to confuse you, is the trauma that can get caught up in the hips. So the emotional stress, the emotional, I don't even know what you would call it, basically the energy that gets trapped into your hips, okay? Now, the best way that I like to describe this is just the fact that for most of us, we kind of live in a forward flexed society, okay? Um, At least this is the way that I like to describe it with regards to the hips, We're always kind of in a seated position, a bent forward position. We're kind of hunched over. Ultimately, our hips are often in a flexed position, driving in a car, riding a bike. You know, it's very rare that we're kind of constantly in an extension position or a neutral position, which would be standing. We're just too tired and lazy to be able to do that. It's a lot of work, right? So oftentimes our hips are stuck in kind of a flexed position. Maybe not stuck, but they're often just in a flexed position. So for that reason, when we're living our day-to-day life, you know, experiencing emotions, having little interactions and stuff like that, our body will remember what it is that we're feeling or what we're experiencing and usually can get stored into the body, especially if we don't deal with those emotions properly in the moment, whether we manage them or we bury them deep. Well, guess what? When we bury them deep, sometimes they can just get stored right into those, to those muscles. Um, So if we're constantly in a flexed position, then that makes it really easy for those muscles to kind of store and make the flexibility of trying to do the opposite movement, which would be more of an extension, kind of opening up those hips would be harder to do, especially if there's those trapped emotions in there. So that's one way to thinking about it, just kind of a general day to day. That's how we operate. And, you know, we live our life, we have emotions and we have situations or stressors and it can kind of get trapped in there. The second piece that's connected to this is more of like a startling response. So generally speaking, when we get scared or whenever something's happening that we don't feel quite safe or secure, we will either kind of go into a startling response, which is like hunching forward, bringing our head down, kind of crunching and creating basically a protection of our, our front body to protect our organs. And when we do this, we're again, creating a bit more flexion in our hip. And again, I'm talking specifically about the hips, but you know, these emotions and things can be trapped in other areas as well. But particularly for the hips, this is just the factor that's going to affect your flexibility, right? So this startling response, you know, we go to protect our head because something flies over top or it's scary or whatever happens. We kind of go into this fetal like position. Okay. So as a result, whatever trauma, stress, or emotional thing that happened, now, all of a sudden, that is going to get stored into the hip, okay? Or particularly in this case, it's going to get stored into those muscles that cause flexion of the hip, right? Some trauma, some stress, maybe some tension, some sort of undesired emotions. Ultimately, it's like a muscle memory, right? The body's going to remember. So fetal position, it's a very comfortable position for us. You know, it's what we were basically brought into this world as, the comfort in the wound, the womb. So... Ultimately, a lot of emotional stress can be caught, uh, can be stored in the hips, right? 
And then also, again, like I said before, comparing to others in society or social media, if we were to have things, you know, like walking around, dealing with emotions of day-to-day life, feeling decreased sense of self-esteem or confidence, feelings of unworthiness, inadequacy, shame or guilt. Just imagine what that person's posture would be like. Imagine what that person's positions would be like. They're going to be more hunched forward. They're going to be more flexed, maybe a little bit more kind of not standing as tall. So again, that front body is starting to compress a little bit more. And now that emotion or those emotions are going to get stored in the front body, particularly in the hips in this case. So that's one thing to keep in mind when it comes to flexibility in the hips is that our emotions can easily get stored, not just in the hips, but particularly for flexibility purposes, because it's already affected by so many other factors that this is just going to add to the challenges of having increased flexibility within our hips. So for this one, if we want to talk about some, you know, solutions to this, ultimately there's a couple ways that we can do this, right? Obviously, if we're working on our body physically, doing asanas and, you know, stretching and doing mobility exercises, flexibility exercises, <clears throat> that's going to allow to create physical space to allow these emotions, these traumas, these stressors to be released out of the body. However, that by itself is not going to be enough. We usually have to do some sort of, um, I don't know if I'd call it intellectual work, um, energetic work, whatever language you want to use, but ultimately you need to do some other kind of mental, emotional, or spiritual work to be able to try to release those emotions. Okay. And sometimes that requires therapy. Sometimes that requires a coach or something along those lines to be able to guide you through that, asking questions, pulling up feelings and emotions that you don't really want to feel, but they're kind of stuck in there. So part of releasing and creating space within the body, within our our heart within our hips is we need to kind of release some of that emotional stress as well. Okay. So combination of things, obviously doing the physical, but then also you need to do that energetic, emotional, spiritual work as well. So that's kind of how we, that's kind of, that's kind of how we can influence that factor of emotions affecting our hips. So let's go into the last one. This is the one I can speak to very, very well. And this is the imbalance of muscles in our hips or surrounding our hips that can affect our flexibility. So this is the last and final factor. And the one that is probably most, probably easily understood because of understanding where if one side is stronger than the other side, then that's going to cause an imbalance. Something is not going to be entirely balanced out. And like I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, there's so many muscle structures that surround the hip joint, fascial lines that surround the hip joint, that if there's an imbalance somewhere, I mean, the hips are going to experience it, right? Especially because it's also the epicenter of the body. So the hips are quite complicated, right? It's quite a complicated area. Even for myself going through physio school, learning about all the body and learning about different joints and like how to assess and treat certain joints. Even our professors were like, you know, the hips, they're a little complicated, right? You're not going to always get it on the first try because there's so much going on in there. So that's basically what we're dealing with. So the imbalance in the hips, the muscle imbalance in the hip, what does that actually mean? Well, in order to keep it simple and easy to understand, we're just going to categorize two sets of muscles or two groups of muscles around the hips. There are obviously lots of muscles, but let's just keep things nice and simple. So we have the hip flexors, okay, specifically the psoas. I'm sure you have heard of the psoas before, which is in the front of the hip. And then we have the glute muscles in the back, okay, the gluteal muscles, the butt muscles, whatever you want to call them. Okay, so the glute muscles, ultimately those are responsible for stabilizing the hip, stabilizing the pelvis, creating a neutral pelvis, and ultimately protecting the lower back. 
as a little side caveat. And then the psoas itself is responsible for ultimately protecting the lower back as well. So it's going to be kind of hard to imagine this, but ultimately the psoas attaches to the front of your thigh bone on the top and it goes in and behind your organs, in behind your stomach muscles, and then attaches to your lower back, the side of your lower back, basically the spine. Okay. And you have one on each side, of course. So even though it's kind of a little bit deep, it, it does technically, it, it, it orientates itself in the front of the body and it creates the hip flexion itself. So, okay. Ultimately, what does this mean? This means that with these two muscle, this is where most of the muscle imbalance comes from. Okay. Is these two groups of muscles, the hip flexors, specifically the psoas and the glutes, specifically the gluteus medius muscle. So if you're unfamiliar with the glute muscles, there are three. We have the gluteus maximus, which is the big juicy muscle that you see when you look at someone's butt. Then you have two smaller ones, the gluteus medius, which is kind of buried underneath that one. And then you have the gluteus minimus, which is almost buried underneath that one. So we have a couple layers of glute muscles. But the thing to remember is that the gluteus medius is responsible for stabilizing the hip, stabilizing the pelvis. And ultimately that's usually one of the ones that causes some sort of imbalance in, in and around the hips. So to some degree, most people do not necessarily have hip flexors that activate very strongly or the psoas muscles. So if they have a difficult time squeezing their knee into their chest or holding their knee into their chest, like a tiger pose, basically a plank where you pull your knee towards your nose and holding that position or drawing it higher up, like that's going to feel difficult and challenging, or just even, you know, stepping your leg through, having a hard time doing that as well and holding that in a nice controlled way. A lot of that involves your hip flexor, you know, your, your psoas muscle. So if that muscle is not activated or it's not firing properly, it's going to be really difficult to do that. And therefore, as a result, you're going to probably have some sort of compensation because that muscle is not firing properly. It's not as strong. So you're going to have some sort of compensation probably on the backside where it's going to need to make up for that lack of strength. Okay. So this is what we're talking about with muscle imbalance. It can get quite complicated, but ultimately it's related to some structure or one of the muscles that's just not firing or working properly. So the two main ones that I identify as the psoas, and then the second one is the gluteus medius. So again, the gluteus medius, this one usually is, it, it manifests in a way where you feel unstable when standing on one leg, typically in like a partial squat. Okay. So Ultimately, your hips might feel a little wobbly, something along those lines. That's usually when we have some sort of muscle imbalance in the gluteus medius. Or another example is if we're doing something like Ardha Chandrasana, half moon, where we're standing on one leg and we're externally rotating our hip out to the side, and maybe you start to get a cramp in your butt, or you're just having a hard time holding that position. The gluteus medius is what's extremely responsible for the stability of that pose. So oftentimes, those two muscles, the psoas and the gluteus medius, might not necessarily be activating as well as we would like, and therefore we're causing some sort of imbalance in and around the hips. So if one is not firing or engaging when it's supposed to, then we get that muscle compensation, right? So maybe one is much stronger than the other, so the opposite one will become tight. Both leading to some sort of muscle imbalance, some sort of compensation somewhere in and around the hip or somewhere along one of those fascial lines that we talked about before that crosses the hips. So ultimately, what's the solution for this last factor? Well, a well-balanced yoga practice that caters to all movements of the hips or all planes of movement in the body. So for example, if you love backbends and that's all you teach, 
or that's all you do, or that's all a student likes to do, you may it may lead to some sort of muscle imbalance there, okay? Or maybe you don't enjoy doing twists, or they're challenging to do, or it doesn't feel good in your body, so you don't teach them, or maybe there's a student that doesn't enjoy doing them. Ultimately, the whole point is to understand that we need to have a balance of movements, a balance of poses, and if there's any particular thing that you're not doing, or you don't like doing, or you don't like teaching, ask yourself why, and wonder if there might be some sort of imbalance muscularly that makes it difficult. So your, your practice or your teaching style might get really good in a certain direction. But if there's a certain area of that that you don't really want to move into because it's hard for you, it's challenging for you, then you're only going to continue to create more of a separation between those two things. Let's just say backbends or twists is a simple example, and that's what we used. You know, you love backbends and you're great at them, but you don't really enjoy twists. It doesn't feel good in your body. So for whatever that reason is, you know, if we're avoiding those twists, it may lead to some sort of muscle imbalance in other areas of the body. So we just want to keep things simple, right? Small movements can lead to big movements over time. So if something's hard for you to do or teach, that's okay. You can still do it or teach it and just do it in smaller amounts. And then gradually over time, things will get better and easier, right? And this applies to both you and any of your students. There are various different ways that you can kind of go more deeply into this topic, talking about hip flexors and psoas and how to get it firing again. And ultimately, that's something that I do as a physiotherapist. But there's definitely, you can go on YouTube and look up some exercises on how to get your hip flexors firing or to test if your hip flexors are firing properly or your gluteus medius is firing. Ultimately, it's just understanding that this is one of the factors that affects your hip flexibility is if we don't have a balance of muscle structures in and around the hip, then our flexibility is not going to be as strong or as open and available to range of motion. So ultimately, that's it. So what are those four factors? Again, let's just kind of go a quick overview. Orientation of the hips, right? The shape and size of the bones, which direction they're pushing in, uh, facing, I should say, not pushing in. Uh, male or female usually helps to give a general idea of, you know, where that direction is. But again, you can look this stuff up. Like what, what are some different examples of shapes of pelvises that exist? Just so you can kind of orientate yourself and get an idea of like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. Right. I can't do that on a podcast, unfortunately. So you'll have to do your homework. The second piece is the muscle strength and size, which you can kind of just look down and be like, oh yeah, I have a lot or I don't have a lot. Or if you have someone that come into class, it'll be very obvious. Um, the third factor is emotionals, emotional stress traumas that can get caught and stuck in and around the hip. So that's a deeper topic altogether, and I'm sure we'll dive deeper into that one. And then the fourth factor is the muscle imbalance, which we just finished breaking down. So hopefully this was helpful. And I know that talking about anatomy through a podcast is not the easiest thing to digest. So if you've made it through this far, kudos and thank you so much. Uh, I'd love to hear your feedback on whether or not this was helpful. And if it was visually possible for you to be able to understand. Um, so I'm doing my best because I'm visualizing it as I'm talking about it. But I know that it's not as easy for some people to do that. So give me some feedback. Let me know if this is great. If it's not, I won't do them anymore. No problem. Um, okay, that's basically it for me. Let me know if you have any questions about this. You can reach out to me on Instagram. I've actually changed my handle. So that'll be in the show notes. But I think it's michael.yogaanatomy. Uh, so it's at michael.yoganatomy if you want to follow me if you aren't already. And I will be happy to answer any of your questions through there. Otherwise, I hope you have a beautiful, beautiful day. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you. I love you. And we'll talk to you soon. Take care.